Praise the Lord. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Um, now, this is normally the gospel for the fourth Sunday in Lent in a different year, the year of Luke. So that's why um, this is an important Sunday. This is the fourth Sunday in Luke, so we're almost through Lent. And so those of you have, who have given up chocolate for Lent to try to grow closer to the Lord, we're coming to the end. Praise the Lord. This is, this is a crucial passage in Luke. Um, we're, in the, we're in the year of Mark, so we've probably forgotten the key verse in Luke, from Luke chapter 19, at verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so chapter 15 in Luke is the key chapter in Luke because we have three parables dealing with lost things. And this is uh, chapter 15, as it shows us in the first verse, is, is a discussion with Pharisees. So this is, um, this is a theological seminary discussion between Jesus and and the teachers of the law in Israel. Um, this is it. This is the chapter. So you cannot separate any of the three parables. They all go together. They support each other. We have three parables about lostness. We have the lost sheep, we have the lost coin, and we have the lost son. We're looking here today at a very dysfunctional family. We have concentrated in the past on the prodigal son who goes far away. And it seems like he's the only one who's lost. But if we look at this text through Middle Eastern eyes, there is some understated currents going on in this text. We have a family, that, and we talk about three members in the story. The younger son, an older son, and the father. The younger son decides he's going to take his share of the inheritance. Now, Western commentators don't find any, any problem with this. They just kind of think that's a normal kind of thing to do. This is a huge problem in the Middle East. Because you're basically saying, Dad, you know, I kind of wish you were dead. So hand over my portion of the inheritance. So the son is divorcing himself from the family. And when he does that, he divorces himself from the fellowship of the community of the people 
around him. Nobody is going to understand this. And in fact, it doesn't really talk about the older son here, but what is the older son doing? Why is not the older son interceding uh, in a Kissinger-like fashion here to try to bring the two parties together, younger son and father? And people are going to ask as well, what is the father doing? Why is he giving this self-indulgent son the inheritance? What is happening here? So the question of the younger son, hey, can I have the inheritance? <laughs> is horrible. Is horrible. The inheritance is never shared until after the dad is dead. And so we see a web of dysfunctionality in this family. Amen. But the father um, allows this to happen. He allows this freedom to take place. So the younger son receives that inheritance and has to skip out of town pretty quickly. Because if he's doing these things, then the people in the town know what's going on too. Now, a town back in those days is not a town like we have today all spread out. The town is close. So the main street of the town is only eight feet wide, right there. That's the main street of the town. It's just wide enough for a camel, fully loaded, to walk down. So... Everybody knows what's going on. And so if the younger son sells part of the property, the rules are the property really can't change hands until the father dies. So he's kind of selling the property um, ahead of time. It's still, the property will still remain with the dad, but whoever buys it has dibs on it once the dad is dead. So he's got to sell it quick and skip out of town. Because once he does that, everybody in town is going to know what's going on. And you know and I know that everybody in town is going to be talking about that. Amen? Now, it is also... Um, tradition, Middle Eastern tradition, <laughs> that when somebody treats you like that, um, you go through a rite of proclaiming this person dead to you, the, the younger son. He, he has left us behind. He has washed his hands of us. So we do a little rite and we uh, bust, a, bust a jar, bust and, and declare him not. We don't see that here in the text. But you can imagine that's in, in the people's mind, in the town, because the younger son has just embarrassed, embarrassed the dad, embarrassed the family. And 
and, and kind of not live into his responsibilities of being a son. Now the Pharisees are hearing this. The Pharisees, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's already talked about the lost sheep. Remember the, the good shepherd leaves the 99 in the wilderness to go get the one, ba ba ba, who's lost. Okay? So the shepherd who is not the best shepherd because he lost the sheep in the first place must then expend time, energy, etc. to go find and save the lost sheep. Now, way back in verse 1, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. So these three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, are all in response to the Pharisees grumbling. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he sitting with sinners? So he talks about a lost sheep. In the second parable, he talks about a woman who has lost part of her Social Security. What makes this harder is in the Galilee region, they're using basalt for the stones in their house. Basalt is black. So that makes the inside of the house even darker <laughs> to try to find something that's lost. And so the woman kind of haphazardly loses a coin, but then becomes a good woman because she seeks and finds the coin. Now remember our key verse for chapter Luke that Jesus talks about in chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Maybe you better repeat that with me. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So what do we see in the lost sheep? We see the good shepherd seeking and saving the sheep. In the story about the woman, ah, the story about the woman. Now, we're familiar with the story of the Good Shepherd. Wonderful, multiple imagery of the Good Shepherd in the scriptures. Here, Jesus compares the task of seeking and finding to a woman the good woman, 
shepherd, a man, a good woman, a woman, seeking and finding the lost coin. So each of these parables, including that of the lost son, which we're looking at specifically today, help illuminate each other. The lost sheep cannot find himself or herself or itself. It can help a little bit because it's out there in the wilderness going, and it has no idea where to go. The coin is inanimate. So it can't help finding itself either. The woman has to scratch around, and basalt is not like, you know, marble, slippery and smooth. Basalt is like volcanic and fraggly and scratchy and rough. And she's, she's got to go picking, checking to see, maybe it dropped down a crack. Where is this thing? Oh, I better get a light. I need some light in here. It's dark. Where did this go? And so Jesus is comparing God with the shepherd, with the good woman, and he is comparing the ministry that he's involved in with the shepherd and the good woman and the father in these three parables. The Son of Man came to seek, seek, and save the lost. Amen? Find those lambies. Find that coin. So the son runs out of town as fast as possible because he knows that everybody's going to know what he's been up to. When they, Did you hear? Did you hear what happened? Did you hear? Did you hear somebody had to buy this land and he's escaped to a foreign, foreign country? He's gone. Well, he seemed to have been gone before he left. Um, and where is the elder son? He seems to be gone too. He's not intervening. He's not paying attention. What has been going on in this household? Well, that's a question that's not answered. And I don't think we can answer that question. Only after a few days, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey to a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, later on, the elder son's going to blame him for Im immoral living, but that's not in the text here. It's just that he, he spent, he spent, and he spent. And what's interesting is in the foreign country, he has no one... To help him, no one to support him. There's no family in the foreign country. He's left family behind. 
he divorced himself from the family, physically, mentally, spiritually. So he's gone. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so this is over a period of time. This is years later. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and sent, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. Now it's obvious that this citizen is a Gentile because he owns pigs, right? And it's obvious that this citizen probably doesn't want this guy around him either because uh, he gives him this task. Oh, it, thinking, well, if I give him this task, he's a Jewish fellow. If I give him this task, he'll, he won't want to do that. He'll kind of go away. But that's the task that he sets him to do. And the younger son is in such need that he is willing to shame himself from a Jewish perspective and go do this and be a servant that feeds pigs. And he was so hungry that he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. He is totally alone. His idea was to go into a far country and do something with his life. And nothing, nothing has happened. He has no friends. He has no food. He has nothing. Everything has been squandered. Ah, but when he came to himself, how many of my father's hired servants, he said, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, um, this gospel we chose today because it shows generally speaking, repentance. And the Lord calls us to repentance. However, the younger son has still got a plan here. This is not quite your normal repentance. This is the son's plan B. Plan A didn't work out very well, right? He's separated from his family. He has nothing left. So he comes up with plan B. And he decides that he's going to go to the his father and say so father I am now not worthy to be called your son so help me up a little bit and I'll put some more things together and then I'll be back in your good graces and then I'll be worthy to be called your son now, we don't see that necessarily from the English language here, but that's what's in the language. The son has a plan. 
So it's really not heart-filled repentance here. I mean, he's repenting that he's gone to a far country and made a disaster of his life, right? But he's going to try to once again merit the approval of his dad. If he becomes a hired hand, he'll get a little extra cash and he'll be able to save up. And maybe he'll be able to buy back that piece of property that he's already sold. And then he'll be back in good graces. Now the Lord demands from us repentance. But I have to tell you, it is the Lord that enables us to repent. It is the Lord that goes to seek us and find us and save us. Our younger son here is trying to save himself with plan B, right? One day, I can get back into my father's good graces. Even though I've treated my family like trash. But he'll have mercy on me, and he'll... I, I, won't, I'll, I'll, I won't live with him. I'll be outside the family still, but I'll work myself back in. That's what the younger son is planning to do. Because we know when we repent, truly, we, we try to um, uh, repair the breach that sin has made. And we promise never to do the same thing again, right? So we turn away from what we were doing and go a different way. We repent. I don't think this is true repentance here. I think the son is saying, I am now not worthy to be called your son, but give me a couple more years because I have a plan. Now, do we treat God like that? Do we, do we think that, well, you know, hey, let's see, what can we do now? <laughs> Help me out a little bit here, Lord, you know. We kind of blew that. Um, tell me how we can, uh, give me a few, give me some help here, and then maybe we can build back up into this thing. Now, the father in this story has been worried about his son since the son asked for the inheritance. Because it revealed his true heart. And so the father is crushed. We don't, we don't read that he like went through a ritual of like, this son is dead to me now. It doesn't seem like he did. father is looking for the son. And so he sees the son coming from afar off. From a real far off. So, so the father, it seems to me like the text is telling us the father is consistently and constantly looking for the son. The father, even though he's in the village, is worried and praying and 
searching on the horizon for a change in heart. So when he sees the sun coming, he has to run and protect the sun from what the villagers are going to do to the sun when the sun shows up. Because the village knows that the sun has rejected them. He's rejected the community. He's gone way away. He said, I don't need you people. I'm leaving. So if the father hasn't done this little ritual, the villagers are ready to do that. And maybe even stone the son because he's not a part of them anymore. And so once the son enters the village and starts coming down the street, there's going to be talking. How can we protect the young son from what's deserved. The only way to do that is to run and go get him and protect him. And so the father does something that in the Middle East never happens. That is an elder running. One of the reasons that you don't run, I have the perfect object lesson, is because your vestments are long. And you can't run unless you kip up your vestments. And then you can run. But then your little brown legs are hanging out there naked. And that's shameful. Okay, you're you're not supposed to show your gates, but that's the only way you can run to protect the sun and, and cover over him so that the town doesn't get to him first. So this is not the idea that the father is in the house like waiting to hear the son knock on the front door. Of course, there's not much of a front door there. It's all stone, right? No, the father is actively looking and searching for him to protect him from what the town would do to him. They assume that the father would want them to do that because he's divorced us all. He's destroyed the inheritance. He's like said that he doesn't want us and doesn't want to be around us. And so publicly, publicly, the father then says to the son, well, now, what's, let's take a look here. What's going on? The son first says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Right? He stops there. I think he stops there because the father has seen him run to him and embrace him and kiss him there publicly in the middle in the middle of the street 
So the son realizes that the father is merciful and the father is full of grace and his concoction of plan B will not work. Right there, the son's heart is crushed because he knows the father loves him immeasurably and is willing to break custom and is willing to bring him back into the family. And so publicly the father says, so bring me a robe and bring me a ring and let's kill the fatted calf. Now the fatted calf, uh, you need 200 people to eat the fatted calf. And you need hours to prepare that. So, so we're talking about a wealthy father here. We're talking about the whole town coming and celebrating that the son who was dead is alive. The son who was lost is now found. So that's a public recognition, verbal recognition that I am bringing this son back into the house. And will you all rejoice with me, the father, that my son has returned. And so the feast is not really in honor of the son. It's a feast thrown by the father because of his joy at the return of his son. Now, we turn to the self-righteous Well, they're really both self-righteous, right? And in that sense, they're both lost. The younger son rejects everything. The older son just bites his lip and stays around and keeps things going, but seems to be kind of angry. <laughs> Doesn't have a great relationship with the father doesn't have a relationship where they feel that they can share. They have a tendentious relationship. The son, the older son, is going to stand out in the street and make the father leave the feast to deal with the son in the street. Both sons self-righteous. Both are lost in that sense. And in fact, the father says, come and, come and be with us. The son who is dead is now alive. Rejoice. And Jesus is going to leave it, the scene right there. We don't know if the older son is going to go back in. 
if he's going to realize the love that the father has, if he's going to realize the compassion that the father has. The father has love and compassion, but the sons must act and say, I need that love, I need that compassion. And we as Christians need to cry out to the Lord because we cannot save ourselves. Amen? If we're drowning, we usually go into panic mode. And so somebody has to do something. Somebody has to throw something to us. Because we're panicking. Or somebody has to come to us. And they'll probably bop us on the head, right? So that we stop panicking so that not everybody drowns. Because we're flopping around. We are lost. But God's heart and Jesus' ministry is to seek and to save the lost. Jesus would have us repent of our self-righteousness, of developing a plan that we'll get in together with God, God, with your help, we can do all kinds of stuff. Only Jesus can save us. So this chapter 15 is crucial in Luke. It's the most important chapter. It defines the ministry of Jesus it shows us his heart. It shows us that while we were yet sinners, God sent Jesus to rescue us. That the young son, that the elder son, who are dead, would become alive. That the lost, would be saved. And Jesus invites us today to accept his gift. If we repent, we have to accept the gift that Jesus has for us. And we have to come in to his heart. Amen? Amen?